welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the platform to perform. I'm your host as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode number 31 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I'm delighted to welcome my first female coach, Erica Suter. How are you doing today, Erica? I'm doing great. That's exciting. Episode 31 and first female coach. So this this will be a great discussion. <laughs> first of many, I hope. First of many. Um, the first question I always kick things off with uh, is from Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why. Um, but if you could give people a little bit of an introduction to yourself and just explain why you do what you do. Yeah, so it it really started when I when I was young. Um, so I was 12 years old and started with strength and conditioning as a young soccer player, and it it honestly changed my life. Um, obviously, it changed my performance on the pitch, and I was a lot faster and stronger, and I just grew into a better athlete. And I instead of hitting a wall in, in middle school, I started to progress even more. And I had an amazing strength coach when I was young, very critical time of growth and and learning how to move properly, learning how to lift with good technique. So since that time, I've I've had strength and conditioning as a a part of my life. And, And now I'm about to turn 31 and I'm in love with it now more than ever. And, and I absolutely loved it uh, back then when I, when I was playing as a kid and not only just from a performance standpoint, but now I'm starting to see more of the, the mental benefits to it and just improve mood and energy levels and, and confidence in myself and being able to adapt and overcome challenges. I mean, the, the weight room is the ultimate adaptation. So um, I just love seeing what I'm capable of as I continue to get older. And I'm, I'm not an athlete myself anymore. Um, I'm more of a human athlete now. So um, it's very important for me to spread this message to, to younger kids so that when they continue through sports and when sports end, they continue to take care of, of their health and become the strongest and, and most resilient version of themselves. I like that a lot. I love the concept of a human athlete. Um, I wouldn't mind diving a little bit deeper into that, actually, because I think uh, a lot of people outside of strength conditioning might think, for example, oh, football or soccer, there's a program. Hockey or rugby, there's a program. And almost like it changes drastically. Um, in terms of, for example, your training when you were competing um, as an athlete versus now, has that changed much at all? Well, I can tell you now I'm not doing as much conditioning as I was. Um, I, and I would say that's where the training gets a little bit more specific to the sport, especially if it's team sports like lacrosse, soccer, basketball. The conditioning is generally going to be the same. Um, so training aerobic system, anaerobic energy systems. Um, so I don't do as much of that now because I'm not preparing to play 90 minutes but I'm still doing just my general physical preparation. So just making sure I'm staying balanced, I'm coordinated, I I can move well. uh, And with that, I can load and I can continue to strength train and and adapt in the gym um, to to heavier loads or, or different muscle actions like eccentrics, isometrics. So I'm still doing a a strength program that I was when I was growing up. Um, But it's just more of the, it's 
more of the strength training, the stability training, the mobility, and less of the the running. <laughs> I mean, that's as good an excuse as any for me. I mean, um, something I had on a, another podcast, which I quite liked, and you kind of touched upon it there, is the idea of whilst we might have long-term athletic development, there's going to be one day where you stop playing sport in the traditional sense but it shouldn't necessarily mean oh I'm not playing anymore so now I do nothing um so I quite like that uh, something you mentioned in uh, I can't remember whether it was yourself or the person you were interviewing um but quite a scroll down from one of your other podcasts which I quite liked uh was the young athlete is paying attention to everything you do and the context of which you were saying it was talking about how important it is for strength conditioning coaches to be training themselves um, I know some people like Mike Boyle and other coaches I've spoken to have differing opinions uh, on how important that is. So just curious as to your opinion, given your background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't expect my my athletes to to do exactly what I do, um, <laughs> because some some of the stuff I do, it's it's really dialed in. Um, and, and now that I, I'm in my 30s and I'm I'm working in a high performing environment as far as my career. I need to be as sharp as possible. So I'm constantly digging through new research on training and nutrition. And then I just experiment on myself, you know, so I don't expect them to do that. Um, I'm going to study it first and then I might suggest it to them. But it's just, it's things like, you know, I'm starting to look at eating organ meats because they're more nutrient dense and um consuming bone broth because of the the collagen content and helping with the, your gut health. So just like dialed in stuff like that, um, new sleep hacks. So as soon as I wake up my first few hours in the day, I'm going for a walk and exposing my eyes to sunlight. And then a couple hours before bed, I'm dimming the lights in my room. So it's just like very specific stuff like that, because I want to make sure I feel at my best when I'm coaching, when I'm writing, when a parent might send me an angry email and I can manage my emotions and and respond and be calm. Um, So that's, that's why I dial in, in my own life, because I want to feel at my best, but I I do think like a lot of the athletes I work with, they, they catch on to it and kids are really smart. (laughs) You know, they, they watch everything you do. They follow you on social media. They're looking at your Instagram story and and, and the foods you're posting. And I think it's good to, to showcase that. Um, You know, Mike Boyle says, oh, well, strength coaches don't need to work out to be, to be smart and to be good at what they do. And I totally agree with that. But with the young athlete now, there needs to be some sort of example setting. And they don't have to do it exactly like you, but you you want to be a role model to them and embody good health. And good health can can mean dialing in, but also maybe having some days where you're you're eating a donut and, and you have some balance and you're showing you're not perfect, but you're trying your best. And that's that's what I want to to show to them. Jill, I actually really like the fact that you use the word health there because I think. Uh, or something I was certainly guilty of when first getting into strength and conditioning, I'm sure a lot of people do this uh, when they don't know what it's about, is they equate strength and conditioning to bodybuilding somehow. And (laughs) it's like, for example, would you rather have, or do you think a coach is a better role model because they train six days a week, but for example, their sleep pattern's terrible or they don't get on with their spouse. 
and it, for me it should go a lot deeper than you know i don't know can they squat to depth or whatever yeah i like that a lot um and in terms uh, in terms of your writing i'm just interested because i'm currently in the process of writing a youth athlete uh, ebook uh, but i'm just curious i've read a lot of your uh, blogs do you have any any kind of i guess routines to put you in the mood for writing to do it set times uh, how does how do you put yourself in a creative mindset you know oddly enough it's it's drastically changed so a couple of years ago i would be writing several times a week and i was just in the mindset okay let like let's get content out there let's let's go 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 and now that I'm starting to, you know, get into other projects like my remote training, the podcast, I want to set aside just one day a week for my writing where it's a longer, more detailed article. So I usually write those on my days off from coaching. So um, I always divide my work into two brains. So my left and my right brain and coaching is my left brain. Podcast and interviewing people is my left brain and sending emails left brain. But then I want to have days where I'm only doing right brain work. I can't like do both on the same day. So I'm usually getting into my, my writing and opening up my notebook on my off days from all the left brain stuff. <laughs> so that's usually on the weekends, oddly enough. And I've, I've probably written on the weekends, geez, for the past, five years and I love it and that's where I get the most creativity no I, I like that it's funny because I sometimes find that when I try and put myself in a mood to write there's no content and then I don't know I'll go for the walk go to the gym and I'm like oh could write about that could write about that like I yeah. went bouldering um the other day and just started thinking about like a friend of mine was using parts of the wall which didn't even have I guess a rock or whatever the technical term is on it because he'd been bouldering so many times his perception of it was that's not an empty space I can actually use that whereas somebody who's never done it before I was looking at it being like well there's one colored rock there there's one colored rock there my body won't stretch that far oh I can't do it um but just spending four hours messing about with that I was like affordances for action training the perceptual side of things as well as the physical and then was thinking you know uh, learning how to fall and thinking, well, I don't really do that as much as I should do in my training. If you're not going to learn something like that when you're mid twenties, then what are you going to do when you're mid sixties? <laughs> and all of a sudden all these creative ideas flowing. So I'm just, like I said, intrigued as to how you're putting out the content or putting yourself in that sort of frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it usually tends to, to come during activities where you're moving and you're not really thinking about anything else or judging yourself. You're just very in your flow state. So walking is a big one. Walking is where I get most of my ideas. And sometimes I'll have to like take out my phone and write in my phone notes. Otherwise the idea just disappears. And and that's the, that's the drawback with creativity. It's like, you got to have a notebook ready because once you lose that idea, you're never getting it back. So I always have like my phone notes ready or just my, my physical notebook. And, um, you know, oddly enough, I've had ideas while driving on the highway and I've had to pull over on the side of the highway and write an intro to a blog and it's happened hundreds of times. So yeah, the secret has been walking and driving. (laughs) I like that a lot. I think it's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm still yet to finish the book, but, uh, Barbara Oakley's, I think it's called a mind for numbers and it talks about, uh, two different forms of thinking your diffuse mode and your focus mode she describes it as uh 
I think like a flashlight and then I suppose a multi-beam or whatever, but saying that you'll have times when you're driving, when you're walking, and that's kind of when the mind is settled and then you stumble across new ideas, you make connections in your head, whereas sometimes if you focus inherently on one task, it is almost counterproductive and saying that actually you do need both forms. You can't just think, oh, right, let's go, go, go. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, the human brain, we can, we're not good at multitasking. <laughs> not at all. So it's either like you're doing your, your creative work or, or your logical work. Um, so yeah, that's a, a lot of people say, oh, I can multitask. I'm like, no, you can't. The, the, he, there's studies on it. The human brain is not capable. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're not multitasking. You're just doing two things simultaneously really poorly. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> one of the, one of your blogs that actually I thought was quite intriguing and I did enjoy, uh, you talking about the difference between being a good coach and just doing your job. And it really resonated with me because you were talking about, I think either receiving CVs or people talking about their achievements and you were like, hang on a minute. Wasn't that what you were meant to do? Um, could you just elaborate on the, uh, what you'd written in the blog or your thoughts behind writing that blog? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just, as, as performance coaches, we, our jobs, like we, we have to get athletes better. I mean, you know, like that's why people hire us. We have to get them results. We have to make sure their, their speed times improve their strength times. And I'll, when I'm interviewing people to, to intern or to even guest write for me, like they'll send me their resumes and it'll say things like, Oh, I, got so-and-so faster, or I wrote programs for off-season training for this team. And I'm like, okay, well, basically you just did your, your job description. Like what, what are you doing? That's really blowing it out of the park. And I think performance coaches are way more than, than these athlete improvements um, that, that are field based only or gym based only what about what about athletes who who go on to medical school or have just this great career or maybe they're they're good students and they have uh, high high GPAs and that that's one thing it's like whenever I'm I'm talking to my athletes during the warm up um, I'm asking them how's school going and just like getting to know them as a human rather than just the player. And I found that they're, they're more likely to just be completely bought into the entirety of the program because they, they know that they know that you care for them. And that's, that's been really, really huge for me is just getting to know them as, as students, um, as, as people with other hobbies than, than soccer, um, as good friends, so I, I think coaches need to definitely look beyond just uh, the athlete performance. That's, that's like, that should just be a given as far as what we do in our jobs. Yeah. I mean, I've had many people in, in fact, when uh, it was coming up to years ago when I went for an interview with the English Institute of Sport and GB Boxing, I was desperate to find out what attributes that they would really like. And I think I must've annoyed anyone and everyone with any slight connection. I was like, what is it? What do they want? And it's like, look, you can teach the technical skills, but be a good person. I'm like, no, 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 it's the Olympics. It's Paralympic athletes. It's Olympic athletes. There must be more. They're like, no, 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 we can teach you all of that, but you need to be a good person. You need to be able to build relationships. 
Yeah, it's it's huge. And I always I always look at um, the sessions as okay, are these sessions good for their their brains? So are they they able to be creative? Are they having fun? Is this session going to be memorable for them? Like, are they going to look back fondly on on these trainings? And when when they're older, they're like, oh wow, remember that day with you know Coach Erica? We did tug of war. Oh, that's so great! And they have just this like great taste of fitness in their mouths. <laughs> and and it comes back to what are we trying to really teach? Yeah, we're trying to teach speed and change of direction. Great. But we're also trying to teach, okay, well, here's how you guys can do fitness for a lifetime. Here's how you can make it enjoyable. And here's how you can take care of your health through a holistic lens. And and even just things like starting to show them how to breathe and meditate are huge. When, when they get older, they're going to they're potentially be doctors or accountants or, or lawyers and, and people who work very demanding jobs. Are, are they able to calm their internal state or are they going to crack under pressure? So I really want to prepare them for moments like that or even moments like this when we're in the middle of a pandemic and, and they do have to adapt. And when the heat comes nothing really phases them. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I like that a lot. And again, in a similar context over here, I always think realistically, as much as we, you know, we might love to, I've got a friend of mine who he said his dream is to work with an athlete who's won a gold medal at an Olympic Games. I think, oh, that's, you know, that's yeah. fantastic. And, you know, more power to you. But the reality is so, f- no matter how hard we work, so few kids are going to make it to that status. And I always think, for example, if I'm working with an eight-year-old and I don't know, they didn't make the cut to under 10s, what will I want them to know? If they get dropped out at 12 years old, what will I want them to know? And realistically, is it going to be, would it, Would I think to myself, oh, I really hope they can A skip by the time they're 40, you know, in the yeah, grand yeah. scheme of things, is that, yeah. how important is that? I'm, like, I'm not saying we can't somehow get away from the technical side of things, but in the grand scheme of things, there has to be more than just, you know, can you perform the movements competently? Yeah, yeah. And it's, if, if you can create that impact early on, so like you said, eight, eight years old, it's great, great to get them loving movement, having fun, playing. They're going to love it forever. That's why like this age is so, so important uh, to, to get them, uh, early. (laughs) Um, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll have high schoolers come in like 16 year olds for the first time and they walk into the facility and they're just frozen in their tracks. They're like, Whoa, what is this world? And I'm like, this world exists. (laughs) You're late to the party, but we'll, we'll get you in. We'll make sure you, you have a good time. But it's so interesting because I'll have, girls who have been with me since age eight and now they're in high school and they just walk into the facility like they own it (laughs) and they're just like all right what are we doing today are we deadlifting heavy are we doing uh, hang cleans like are we doing weighted pull-ups and they're just so excited um so it's interesting to see that juxtaposition of a girl who's been doing it for all these years and we we got her young versus a girl who's just walking in when she's 16 years old Listening to you speak there, I think reminds me of a couple of things. Uh, 
one of them was when I uh, first got a chance to work with uh, young female athletes and I was interning under a female coach and she delivered probably not what you'd expect to see in a, in a traditional SNC setting. Like they didn't do the big lifts. They didn't do, it just looked like fun. And she was explaining to them, look, strength and conditioning can be fun. And she was saying to them, look, it can make you healthier, but it can also make you walk a little bit taller. And just in your example there with the 16 year old who's been with you for eight years, you think actually they're not phased by walking into this big facility. There might be, for example, I don't know, male athletes training, older people training, yeah. Whereas, you know, you get, um, I've certainly had it before where uh, you'll get female athletes who don't want to train if there's anyone there or they don't want right. to train if there's older girls there. And you're thinking, how do I mix the sessions? And just those life skills that are so easy to overlook when we just think of the physical. Yeah. And, and the, the psychological confidence they get from all those years of strength training and failing a lot because strength training, you're always going to fail. You have to fail to, to get better. You might miss that, that one RM, you might not be able to get your chin over the bar with weight on you, but you just tweak what you're doing and, and then you level up. And it, it's the same thing with life. It's like, if anything, becomes challenging okay you need to you need to take inventory you need to analyze okay where where can you fill a bucket okay maybe it's maybe it's nourishing yourself better maybe it's going to bed earlier so these the skills in the weight room are are skills that they can take outside of the weight room too because the weight room it's hard it's it's not easy there's sessions where you're you're grinding it out you're, you're not getting the results you want and you have to really lean into that process. And it's always oscillating and it's, it's never going to be smooth sailing. It's, it's never going to be perfect. Absolutely. It's, and I think there's always, you always get athletes at a certain age or stage and you can do, I don't know, linear periodization, add a little bit of weight each week. And then all of a sudden there's one week where that doesn't work. You're like, yep, this is, this is how it works. You don't just get gradually better every single day. There are going to be days when it doesn't work for you and that's just life. Yeah. And that's, that's a huge one. And, and that happens a lot with speed and a, a lot of athletes want to beat their PRs in, in like the 20 yard dash every time we test it or every time we run it. And they're, they're not looking at the, the trajectory over many months, many years, but when they do, when they take a step back and see that, that longer process, they're like, Oh, well, the, the rolling average of all those, I got this from a uh, track coach, Brendan Thompson, um, the rolling average of all those times there, what there was an improvement. Um, so I've been trying to experiment with that recently. I mean, you know, I, I love data. I still love performance improvements. Um, and I just want to make sure that they feel like they're getting small wins in, in the gym and on the pitch. Yeah. We were, we kind of alluded to it offline when we were, I mean, I'm reluctant to talk about anything COVID related, but the fact that uh, people don't understand how to actually read into the numbers. I mean, I'm, as you've alluded to there, and I've experienced it myself uh, when I was working. So I don't know what schools are like in America in terms of uh, their terms, but uh, over here we start in September. We might have a Christmas break in December. But what I had was girls whose standing long jumps increased massively from, say, September to November because they hadn't done any strength training and you look like a genius. And they're thinking, oh, strength and condition, this stuff works. But then you test it like, I don't know, three, four weeks later when they're stressed, exams are coming, they're not sleeping, and then it goes down. Yep. And then you're like, oh, actually, I've got something to tell you. You know, stress is cumulative. And uh, yeah, we've got to deal with it. I'm glad that you you brought up stress because that 
that's something we can't ignore as performance coaches, especially in our conversations with athletes, if they're not getting the the results they they want every every session or every time you retest. Um, I had a I had a girl. She started training about half a year ago, and then we just retested. But um, sometimes improve, sometimes didn't. Uh, like the thirty yard, forty yard dash didn't improve. But then I was looking at her schedule, and she had just gotten off like a ton of games and school had just started virtually. So I was like, okay, well, there's a lot more going on here. So that's why we have to be having these conversations with athletes, because if they have a lot going on, if they're stressed, that's going to be an absolute bomb to their central nervous system. And and we need that to be fully functioning when we're doing these explosive tests, like 20 yard, 30 yard and, and 40 yard sprints. So that that's always been an interesting find, but we, we have to, talk holistically with our athletes and have you out of interest have you found certain uh, patterns or like for example the first year when I was at uh, this all girls school I was like oh wow massive improvements and then the second year I was like okay we'll, we'll we'll have massive improvements but then they'll sort of die down and actually you know what if we're still jumping the same distance three months in as we were one month in that's actually an improvement because with all this added stress you're still performing at the same output so actually when we get rid of that stress you will improve uh have you got any sort of i suppose fallback conversations analogies or patterns in your head where you're like right okay we can expect to see this here and if we're still hanging on we're doing okay yeah it's usually like right before school starts we'll we'll retest because that's the end of the summer off-season program but then I'm taking into account, okay, they're all, they're nervous for fall tryouts. They're anxious about school starting. So I'm actually trying to toy with the idea of changing when we test that. So maybe like around the holidays. Um, So that's been an interesting find. And then as far as just uh, age range for, for athletes. So um, usually during the growth spurt, they're getting minor improvements, especially if they're, they're new to a strength training program. So in those first couple months, and, and they're really nailing down the movement patterns, they're starting to feel a lot, a lot faster. They're starting to improve their, their speed times a little bit because they, they have a new adaptation. It's completely new to their system. So their, their gains are going to shoot up a lot quicker. And then I find a little bit after that growth spurt, like age, like 13, 13 and a half for girls, especially there might be a little bit of a drop off only because that's when they start to put on more fat mass. Um, and that's just, you know, it's just normal part of, of growth. Um, but then after that, like 14 and up, they start to put on more muscle and then we can really load them up. We can strength train, do more power training. And that's when the improvement starts to go again. No, that that makes a lot of sense and it's it's nice how you uh, have those conversations with your athletes because again it's easy for us as coaches to be like uh, i know let's say they didn't improve and be like well yeah you're stressed out to the eyeballs you've put on i don't know 10 kilos as a random number or whatever it is mm-hmm. and you're like of, of course you didn't improve and then the athletes are oh oh okay and you're like how did you not notice any of that yeah And it's, um, and I, and I think like the, the training load, as far as the the games and practices they have. 
sometimes it's really hard during the in-season to get any real work done. Um, so the, the, the new stimuli introduced during the in-season has to be just enough, just enough to give them a new challenge, but nothing to totally wipe them out. So that's, that's always one of the big, biggest challenges as a performance coach. It's like you don't want to introduce too much, but you want to introduce a little bit so that there's a new adaptation (laughs) and they can get better. We can't just keep doing the same, same thing over and over again and expect the same results. Um, So in season, the the term maintenance, I'm not a big fan of it. I I like to get better during the season, um, but there's definitely a fine line of how much new we can introduce. Yeah. And I, I think it's in, I think it's from the book, high performance training for sport, but they talk about, the strength paradox and actually you almost need to get stronger to avoid getting weaker or you need to move forward to stand still because once we account for fatigue if you're still just as strong uh, during the season as you were pre-season then actually that's an improvement yeah and I actually uh, took this from Mike Whiteman from our last uh, podcast Mike Whiteman of Riverhounds Academy and he, he said that you always just need to lean one way So if you decide during the season, you want your athletes to get stronger, you're leaning more towards strength in their program. You're still doing some of the plyos and the power work, but not as much, but maybe you decide, okay, maybe we'll do some low level plyos at a a low cost for the nervous system and still work on some explosiveness, but we're going to just get away from a lot of the strength. So you're just kind of like tipping, tipping the scale to either like strength or power. And I think it's going to be a case by case scenario. Um, The the term periodization always kind of trips me out because it's not a one size fits all. I mean, you see um, so many like in-season templates and it's like, you know, it really comes down to who you're working with, your environment, your access to, to resources. If you don't have access to a gym, you might be leaning more towards the, the plyometric and, and the power power side. So it's it's always been been interesting to to analyze. Well, what does periodization really mean? <laughs> yeah, and it's funny. I think periodization is definitely one of those topics where if you knew nothing about strength and conditioning, you could easily go down a rabbit hole. And yeah, great. I've read all these research papers, but what do I actually do? Yeah, I think a, a lot of people do tend to. Uh, go down a rabbit hole with it but uh, strength coach Tony Genicor always always says this and he says you know just progress a little bit each week whether it's going a little bit up in weight uh, changing the muscle action uh, moving in a different plane going to unilateral just do something a little bit each week and it kind of comes back to just adding in a new stimuli and microdosing it and you're you're going to get a new adaptation or a new gain. Uh, and I really like that approach. I like to keep it simple. <laughs> yeah. There's, yeah, there's, especially with, you know, athletes with a low training age, there's no need for this, you know, you see people who are like Excel wizards and you're like, like yeah. that looks great. Let's just do a little bit more. Or like you said, just tweak it from last week. It'll be fine. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned Excel, and um, I hate to admit this as a former Hopkins graduate, but I am not fancy with Excel at all. The formulas, I don't, I don't do. I, I'm just like very basic, like write out the program, sets, reps. It's nothing fancy. 
I make a, a kind of a nice table out of it and that's it. And then as far as like athlete tracking and like performance results, I had them like in a binder, old school, like writing them down. Okay. What'd you get on the 10 yard dash? What'd you get on the broad jump? Like old school, writing it down. Like maybe I shouldn't have admitted this, but my system is very, uh, I guess, old fashioned. <laughs> see, see, I like that. I mean, uh, funny enough, just uh, starting teaching PE this year, like for me, one of the most difficult things in PE versus maths or English is when it comes to assessment. Cause it's not like, here's a test, do the test. Thank you. It's like, yeah. right, I'm watching it and you need to know you've improved, even though I know you've improved. And there was a coach on the stage is like, yeah, I just use a clipboard, a piece of paper. And he's like, and I jot notes down. And I'm like, oh my God, thank you. And he's like, right. Parents even now just sit there and he's like, here's all the notes I took on your kid. And I'm like, oh my God, it really can be that easy. Yeah, it, it is that easy. And also, um, I always talk about look, looking at the qualitative results and Certainly. like, can you, with the coach's eye, look at your athletes and can you see an improvement in their movement over time? Are they more balanced? Are they repositioning their shoulders better when they're changing direction? Do they, are they able to stabilize their trunk and, and make sure that their, their knee and ankle joints are, are stable uh, when they're, when they're turning and when they're cutting. So I think, um, we we've kind of lost the the art of coaching and really using our eyes with all this data and technology. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't use the data and technology. We need to um, for certain measurements and performance tests, but it's good to also use the, the coach's eye. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, even uh, speaking with my coach a few months ago, and we were just talking about uh, all these devices that measure bar speed. And he's like, you do oh, realize yeah. that the correlation between bar speed and RPE is like 0.9. So it's about 90% of the same thing. And yeah. sometimes I look at technology and I'm like, right, when this gives me something that I can't get anywhere else that is valuable and that I can use in the moment, then I'll consider it. But until that point, I'm going to get a tape measure. I'll get you to jump as far as you can. And that two seconds will probably give me just as much information as your 200 quid device or whatever. Yeah, I I love that. And you know, those those devices are great and if you have the if you have the money for it, awesome. Um but I mean velocity based training and, and really measuring it is huge. Um but I like that you said that you can use things like RPE. Um and it's going to be like a similar result. Um I've used the the broad jump as um a measure of acceleration. Um, and I've, with my conversations with track coaches, they said there's a correlation between a really good broad jump and how well your athletes are in their first steps in acceleration. Um, and then the same thing with measuring vertical jump as far as uh, maximal uh, velocity and, and sprinting. So um, I think it's great to look at those correlations and they're very simple to use. I mean, for broad jump, you just need a tape measure, you know? <laughs> Um, so it's, it's been nice to, to talk to some people in the track community with, with some of these simple techniques where I don't need as much technology as I think. Absolutely. And, uh, in terms of your, in terms of your work with, uh, youth female athletes, you mentioned a few minutes ago about, you can't just do the same thing, the same thing. Um, what are some of the mistakes that you see when it comes to, either people training youth female athletes or maybe misconceptions with parents uh, and their daughters or anything like that? What are some of the main mistakes that you see? 
not loading them enough. Um, but that first starts with making sure that they're they're moving well. So can they can they get into a deadlift position just body weight? Can they hinge at the hips? Uh, can they squat? Do they have good good mobility in their hips and, and their ankles? Uh, do they have good core stability? So um, mobility and core stability are like the foundation of what I do to start these girls out. And they're a huge portion of my, my evaluation process. So I'll do a, a max crawling assessment for time to see if there's any tightness in the hip flexors. Are, are their trunks stable? Uh, do they have the core endurance to, to handle it? Um, so we'll do a lot of those types of assessments. And then even just like the 10 yard, 20 yard dash, like, yeah, I'm looking at their time, but I'm also looking at how their, their acceleration technique is, um, is there, is their pelvis internally rotating? Is their posture hunched over? So it's coming back to the, the qualitative results in the, in the coach's eye. So making sure that young female athletes can move well, um, too much progression too soon. So loading them too much too soon is a recipe for injury, um, or, or doing things under speed too soon. So as an example, uh, a single leg deadlift, like, like Whiteman and I talked about this, we love isometrics <laughs> and, and isometrics in the sense where they're, they're just holding the position. So a single leg deadlift, they're holding that bottom position because it's the hardest position of the movement. So if they can nail that down, then they can do it um, under, under more of a dynamic uh, fashion. So they're actually doing the, the single leg deadlift. So I do a lot of isometrics. Um, that's one of my evaluations. And then um, lunge, isometric hold, just making sure there's no imbalance on, on the left or, or right leg strength. Um, and then any lateral shifting of the trunk. So making sure that they can move well, but then once they get to that point and they can prove that they can move in a healthy way um, and they have the stability and mobility needed, then we need to start loading them up. And that's another big thing I see is people aren't challenging their female athletes enough and they need to be training at a higher intensity than the game. We need to be putting them under good amounts of duress <laughs> because their sports are, are extremely stressful and there, there's a lot of force placed place on the joints and, and the muscles. And we want to make sure that they're able to withstand that. So th those are the two biggest things. Um, not making sure they can prove to you that they can move well um, or progressing them too fast or um, not loading them enough once they've proven that that movement competency. And when you've got young girls who do move well, uh, is there anything that you, uh, so for example, uh, in the past, I've used what I call uh, technical AMRAPs, or you basically do as many reps as possible until technique breaks down, but that'll only be like the last set or something. And I've tried to use those as a way of showing female athletes who, the ones I've trained anyway, they're very good at giving an RPE in terms of conditioning work, but because they've not been exposed to the strength stimulus, what they perceive as heavy or hard or difficult, actually they've got loads left in the tank. Is there anything that you try and use to illustrate to them? Actually, you know what you're moving well, we can actually put some more load on. 
Yeah, um, I do a lot of AMRAPs as well, um, but still some of them, they are starting with a lot of the the isometric holds for time um, or we're doing, yeah, we're doing super high rep, um, light to moderate load. Um, and then eventually they get to a point where, okay, now we can get into our strength phase and, and we can load up more, decrease the reps, but it's always such a treat to get female athletes who are already moving well, because it's like, well, now we, we don't even have to go through the teaching phase because my teaching phase with a movement pattern is usually like a four week process <laughs> so that they really nail it down. So they can almost skip that phase. Um, and I just do the movement patterns maybe in their warmup. Um, and then they can jump right into to loading the movements, of course, with a lighter load and they're still able to execute with perfect form each rep. And in terms of, like you mentioned, loading the joints, um, so anyone who's looked at the uh, literature in terms of training young girls might know that ACL risk is much higher. Uh, Out of interest, is there anything that you either do differently with females versus males? And what do you think of the sort of, I use the analogy of big rocks versus little rocks, and it's easy to be like, oh, we need to do this for the female athlete, we need to do that for the female athlete. And you think, well, hang on a minute, would you not teach your male athlete to land well? Would you not teach them how to lower the posterior chain? Um, what would you consider the big rocks to be for female athletes? Uh, mm-hmm. And what would, and how do you go about addressing those if indeed you believe they are big rocks at all? I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned this because boys are just as susceptible, um, especially boys who are also going through their growth spurt. They're go- going to need to work on similar things how to control their trunks, how to, how to land with good stiffness and ankle dorsiflexion, how to recruit their hamstrings and, and their glutes. So um, the programs are going to be very similar, um, but as far as differences, it's it really comes down to navigating training around the menstrual cycle. And I've I'm starting to incorporate this a little bit more uh, just with my conversations with uh, Don Scott, the the former U.S. national uh, team performance coach, who's done great work on training and, and recovery dur- during the menstrual cycle and what to pay attention to. And um, there's different phases in a female athlete's cycle. And um, during certain times, she might be experiencing uh, disrupted sleep, um, more fatigue than normal. And um, what Dawn talks about is not necessarily changing the training and how much you're loading, but just making sure we're getting rid of those symptoms or we're, we're helping them with getting better sleep during this part of the phase when they are feeling really wiped out so we can get the most out of them in the gym or if they're at their their team practices practices. So that's something I'm starting to experiment with, but overall, the, the, the physical training is going to be the same. I mean, general physical preparation, uh, teaching them how, how to land. And then from there teaching them how to create power, um, and obviously starting on, on two legs. So starting as general as possible. And then, slowly moving towards specific, <laughs> don't want to move too soon, um, and going on one leg, uh, maybe uh, moving out of the linear plane and doing a lateral jump or a ro- rotational jump is huge because that's more specific to what's going on in soccer is the, the rotational 
uh, movement. So, um, yeah, and just making sure that we're really focusing on strength and, and not just posterior chain. I think um, everyone could use more posterior work, but we, we still have to strengthen the, the surrounding muscles of the knee and, and the quadriceps and the calves and even, even the feet and the proprioception in the feet. So it, it really comes back to this holistic approach. An ACL reduction program is just building the, the complete athlete, starting from the ground and going all the way up to the shoulders. <laughs> I, uh, I'm sure it's one of Mike Boyle's, uh, one of Mike Boyle's books, but he talks about the female athlete and ACLs. And he's like, look, a good ACL reduction program is just a good strength program regardless. As you said there, making sure, for example, I don't know, the feet is strong, stable and mobile with the plyometric stuff that we're not just saying, oh, well, posterior chain needs work. So let's forget about the quads. Um, a friend of mine has an analogy where he, because we talk about when people pull out these arbitrary ratios and saying that, you know, if, the knee, if the quadriceps, if the hamstrings are quote unquote stronger or dominant in an untrained athlete, those stronger, more dominant muscles are still actually pretty weak. So get yeah. the hamstrings strong, get the quadriceps strong, squat, do your posterior chain work. Don't use those arbitrary ratios and start throwing the baby out of the bathwater. I agree. I agree. And I, you know, I leave that ratio measuring to the physical therapist or the physios. Like I have not once done it in nine years. Like I just, focus on the every muscle group every every group is getting love um maybe some more than others but we're we're doing it all and i'm glad that you also mentioned proprioception in the foot and balance and that's that's a, a huge part of my eval um we will balance on one leg for max time <laughs> and i will i will stop the clock as soon as the, their pelvis starts to rotate a little bit or maybe they're hyperextending their back um, or they're, they're just feeling a lot of pain in, in the, the calf and ankle, which means that maybe their glute and hamstrings not as strong as, as we think. Um, so if they're, if they're wobbling during that test in like the first, I'd even say 30 seconds, then I'm, I'm concerned <laughs> because how are they going to be landing from a, a single leg jump or how are they going to be doing a single leg deadlift? So we want to make sure that we're nailing down balance unloaded first um and i think the feet are are very ignored in in uh acl reduction programs especially for a female athlete who is just starting this type of training it's funny because just whilst you were talking there i was beginning to think of when i do some of my assessments in terms of for example single leg hop and hold standing broad jump and when i do them with athletes for the first time i'll be like right uh, someone's going to jump and then you'll have for example another athlete watching them from the side one watching from behind uh, one and two watching from in front and just say look until you can show me you can hinge at the hips not buckle your knees on the takeoff not buckle your knees on the landing then yeah. the distance is irrelevant once we hit those three checkpoints then i'll tell you how far you jumped yeah no i i i love that approach and it's it's just uh, it really comes back to it being such a gradual process and um, really educating them why we're taking our time with this and um, obviously keeping injury risk down. That's the number one, but making sure that they continue to progress and we don't just completely exhaust them with too much specific training too soon. 
Yeah, and one of the uh, even one of the drills that I've uh, stolen off you that I quite liked, uh, where you basically have an athlete in an A march position, but then uh, lightly hopping on one foot and rotating themselves around. I think it's so easy to well, one forget that athletes or sometimes kids just don't understand where their body is in time and space. And as you said, it's easy to be like, right, we need more power. The textbook says depth jumps and extensive plyometrics when actually they can't even stand on one leg. Right, right, right. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to the depth jump once we nailed this balance down. <laughs> or once once we maybe gain some some quad and some hamstring and some glute strength. Yeah, let's uh, let's put things in place first. Um, one of the things I'm keen for your uh, opinion on, uh, as someone who's obviously played the sport and as someone who's as a strength and conditioning coach, um, if you look at the youth physical development model for females, at no point does it recommend uh, conditioning work. Now, I'd be interested to see how you would go about a conversation with a coach, because obviously any athlete is going to need some level of conditioning to do, for example, play football for 90 minutes. Uh, How do you approach those sort of conversations if a coach is telling you, for example, that, I don't know, 14-year-old football, female footballer needs more conditioning? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's always, that's always a tough one. And, you know, I don't think, young athletes necessarily need more conditioning nowadays with how many times a week they're practicing with their team. So that really comes down to just having open conversations with the athletes I'm working with. Um, like I asked them, do you, do you feel tired in, in the second half? And the answer is no. I'm like, well, you're fine. Like you don't, <laughs> we don't need to fill a bucket that's already filled. Um, so I, I want to fill the buckets that, that they're not getting. So speed is huge. They're not getting maximal velocity at practice. <laughs> um, and even just um, speed endurance. So if I'm going to do any conditioning, I, I want to do more speed endurance work. Uh, where we're running um, maybe a 150-yard shuttle. Um, so sometimes I'll do RPE on that for the work to rest time. Sometimes I'll do heart rate monitor, but the conditioning, I, I always go back to Mike Boyle's, um, I forget what it's called. It's complete, complete conditioning course. Um, and he makes some good, some fair points in there. And when we're conditioning our soccer players, we don't want them to get slower. We want them to still be able to be as fast as they can, especially in those final minutes of the game. So we're better off giving them a stimulus. Again, that's a higher intensity than the game. So maybe we're doing a 150-yard shuttle or they're, they're running 50 yards down and back, uh, working up to like 90 to 93% of their heart rate max, maybe more. And then they're resting. Um, but we want to get them to a point where they're executing good sprint mechanics during their conditioning drills. Um, so I've always toyed with a lot of what he mentions in in that course um if i'm going to have them do more aerobic capacity work we'll do time miles but my time mild standards are really high (laughs) um i don't want them doing this eight minute mile crap (laughs) i want them running it sub six minute 30 seconds (laughs) You know, uh, it needs to be an all-out sprint. <laughs> yeah, I like that. It's funny because I think in terms of PE, 
it's so often where I don't know. Uh, you'll do a timed mile, and you'll look at some of the kids who really deconditioned and can't even run for a mile non-stop, and you think, well maybe there's a better way of doing this as you said where whether we're starting to look at movement quality is it the fact that they move so poorly that moving for a sustained period of time is actually too tiring yes and and you know that's that's something i've found too um the the athletes who um who really need to build their their aerobic base are the ones who just need to get more movement every day you know, uh, whether it's going for a walk or doing uh, an extended warm up and just keeping the, their heart rate at a, at a certain level, um, they just need to move more. And once they add that in, then then that's almost a, enough to get their their aerobic base to, to where it needs to be. Yeah, funny enough, one of the, just looking at the uh, podcast notes I've got jotted down for the conditioning for female athletes question, one of the uh, bullet points just says determine where the low-hanging fruit is. Yeah, and it's and it's also, uh, it's huge for, for injury reduction. Um, if we're not training them at that, that higher intensity in the game, then I wonder if, if they're able to, to handle the, these actions, these very dynamic actions, and in the second half, especially, the, the literature says that that's when the most injury occurs. And it begs the question, OK, well, are they conditioned enough for or prepared enough for the, the second half? Yeah. And even on uh, yesterday's podcast with Harry Green, he spoke about low threshold testing and high threshold testing. And, you know, if injuries are going to happen when people are under fatigue and under cognitive stress and we're testing people fresh, then not saying that there's not a purpose of that but we could be missing some very big things yeah and, um, and the, the cognitive piece for conditioning is huge too and and we can't ignore that as well I mean we like I mean there's so many schools of thoughts and I think there, there's a blend of both um, but they have to do the speed endurance off the ball but then we need to put them in a, a game like situation where they're they're getting conditioning and the the cognitive piece and and they're under pressure so we'll do a lot of (laughs) 1v1s for like a 60 minute or sorry not 60 minutes that'd be crazy (laughs) a 60 second duration all out or we might even make that harder and it's a it's a 1v2 for a 60 second duration i call it my circle of death drill and man, it is exhausting. Um, and then we'll we'll have them rest uh, for a couple of minutes, and then they're back on. Um, and th- those are some of the the most demanding drills. But that that is legit a higher intensity than than they're going to see in in the game. So when they get to the game, like a one v one doesn't phase them at all because they did they did one with us for sixty seconds, and they were gassed. <laughs> Yeah, and also gives you a chance to look at whether the, I mean, Ian Jeffries uses the term game speed, um, but a good way of assessing how athletic they are in when it actually counts, as opposed to, uh, I don't know, an overhead squat drill, which definitely has its uses, but also has its limitations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in terms of strength conditioning for uh, football, then, um, one of the bullet points I've got to jot down is what do you feel the advantages and potentially the disadvantages are of being a strength and conditioning coach in a sport that you've grown up with? Oh man. Uh, advantages, just being able to understand the game 
uh, understand the the demands of it, uh, understand um, what what coaches are looking at too, and how to have those conversations and, and why performance is important and being able to speak a coach's language. I think a, a lot of people who work in performance and they never went through the, the football system or soccer system um, and they're, they're having a conversation with the coach. Oh, well, your players need to lift weights. And the coach is like, well, how do you know you never played? So I can see why they would get pushed back on that. Um, but it's, it's definitely helped me because, you know, I'm, I'm almost like my own research study in the sense that I've done strength and conditioning for over a decade not once had an ACL, um, not once, um, like was really out for an entire season or, and just improved my speed when it, when it mattered. And that was in college. Um, so that's been a huge advantage, um, disadvantage, man, I, I don't know. I have never really thought about that, to be honest. <laughs> I think the, uh, the only, the only reason I asked that, so uh, just to give a little bit of context, uh, when I was based with the GB boxing team, the head of the GB boxing trend and conditioning, he'd never, never boxed himself. And uh, he's, one of the questions he asked the performance director is, why do boxers run? And it seems like such an obvious question. When you've boxed, like if your coach said, go for a run or do your sprints, you'd be like, yep, okay, coach. But when he's like, why do they run? And it just seemed like such a simple question that someone from the sport would never ask. But the reason why I asked it is because we had these freaking huge heavyweights and because they were matching the running loads of the lighter athletes, they were then picking up tendon injuries. And he's like, look, is it that important for you for them to run? Or actually, if we can achieve the same intensity on a watt bike or a rower, um, is that going to be an issue for you? Um, But yeah, one of the, one of the, I personally think it's better to be from the sport so you can speak the lingo, but then I also think that there are certain instances where actually coming into a sport with a complete blank canvas, yes, you might feel like an idiot for asking certain questions, but it's not necessarily a disadvantage to be completely blind to the sport. As long as you've got a level of intrigue and are willing to put the work in to spend time with coaches. Yeah, I think it's, it's huge to, to understand. Um, But just because you played the sport or, or you were a good player yourself doesn't mean you're going to be a good coach. And I've, I've seen that so many times. And um, so that's, that's something where I'm like, you know, like I can't get in my head on this. I have to continue to learn performance. Like my playing career was awesome, but that doesn't matter right now. Like I need to stay up to date on the research. I need to connect with other colleagues in the space or uh, colleagues who aren't soccer like the track coaches I've been having conversations with. And I just have to continue to learn how I can apply these concepts to the game of soccer. And just speaking quickly on your um, talking about conversing with track and field coaches versus obviously um, being involved in soccer yourself. Um, you mentioned something on a podcast of yours. I listened to that I quite liked and I almost feel like when it comes to speed training for football or soccer, there's almost two schools of thought. There's one school of thought, which is, oh, well, we can't possibly, we can't get them to train speed like a track athlete. But then there's the other school of thought, which is actually you can get them as efficient as a sprinter. Then why the hell wouldn't you? Uh, whereabouts do you sit on that continuum? I say, why not? Why not get them close to, to track form? 
Um, of course, like there are times when you have to um, have your speed in a, in a game like setting um, or you're adding that, that cognitive piece um, so that they're reacting to um, an external stimulus, uh, whether that's running onto the ball or chasing someone down. So there's got to be a blend of both. But when we're just training speed and technique without like the ball and, and the, the cognitive piece, that's super valuable because we, we want to get them in positions like track athletes so that they can optimize their, their vertical force production or um, they're striking the ground with the correct part of the foot, which is what we want. And we have to step away from this whole idea in the football community. Oh, well, we need to do everything with the ball. Well, how can I get an athlete again, coming back to multitasking, how can I get an athlete to get as much vertical force into the ground as possible? If they have a ball at their feet, if they have a ball at their feet, they're not driving their knees. They're, they're not completely upright. We, we need to get out of that. Um, There's a time and place for it. Um, But I, I think it's, I don't fall on one side or the other. There needs to be both. Um, sort of like conditioning, you need to train speed endurance without the ball, but then you need to do your small sided games. <laughs> so that's, that's where I stand. It's, um, very, um, blended, uh, approach. No, I like that a lot. And, uh, again, going off the back of being involved in a sport, um, the reason why I asked this question is, uh, a previous podcast guest, Jeffrey Chu, he competed in martial arts and now does strength and conditioning for martial arts. So I said to him, is there anything whether it's drills, activities, et cetera, that you disagree with from a strength and conditioning perspective, but perhaps having played the game, you're like, actually, I can see some value in that, that other strength and conditioning coaches not from the sport might look down on. Hmm. That's a tough one. Um, so I'm trying to understand the question. I, so I tell you, what, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a bit of, I'll give you an example of my own. Um, so when I was boxing, one thing we would do uh, to condition ourselves to take body shots is basically you would stand there and let someone uh, basically hit you in the uh, in the core just to get you used to hit, taking a body shot. Now, from a strength and conditioning perspective, I'd be like, that's ridiculous. You're deliberately taking punishment. Maybe you need to get technically better at avoiding body shots. Like, what are you doing? Um, Whereas from an athlete perspective, I'd be like, well, if I can't take one in the gym, I'm not going to take one in the fight. Um, So yeah, foot in either camp. Yeah, okay. That makes sense now. Um, I think anything where uh, we're adding in the ball to gym movements because at that point, I always wonder, well, is the is the athlete able to get the range of motion we want? Or are we just loading it? And are we loading uh, compensations we don't want? So as an example, um, acceleration, resisted sprints. I see this all the time on Instagram. They'll have a, an athlete uh, with a resistance harness around their waist, and they're they're doing touches on the ball and like dribbling. And I'm like, well, what is the purpose of this drill? Because I love resisted sprints for, for training acceleration. Um, so 
I always wonder what the the goal of that is because it's not training acceleration if the if the ball's in there. They're not able to get a long and strong first step. They're not driving the knee as far forward as possible. They're just doing like small toe taps on the ball with a band around them. So um, yeah, it, it's stuff like that, or even just like a soccer player who wants to improve their throw-in, they're doing like heavy, like weighted medicine ball throw-ins. Um, and they're like throwing their back out. They're not getting the range of motion they want. So it's um, yeah. Anything that's loading the sport specific movements. I'm, I'm not for. <laughs> That makes a lot of sense. I mean, all I can think of is, uh, again, you might be aware of it, you might not be. Um, but a few years ago, there was a player um, for an English football team uh, called Rory Delap, and any fans here will know him. But uh, he won a bet with his, he was in training, and he was a former javelin thrower. And they were just messing around doing throw-ins for distance. And he said, oh, I bet I can throw it 40 metres. And one of the coaches said, no, you can't. Anyway, threw the ball, well, maybe not 40 metres, 40 yards. Um but launched it and they were like, oh God. And then the team built a system around it. And uh, now Liverpool, I think, have hired like a throwing coach, but it just shows you how it's sometimes you're like, oh, maybe there's logic in this. Maybe we're sweating the small stuff. But right. even talking about holistic training, you get a lot of footballers, or at least maybe in this country, are like, oh, well, why do I need upper body strength? Like, I'm not, you know, literally pushing someone. It's like, well, we think holistically, if you can throw the ball further, if you're not going to break your shoulder when you land or you get pushed. Um, yeah. And then it also almost comes full circle, if you will. Yeah. And the, the upper body strength one is huge for being able to lift more on your low, lower body movements. So something like the deadlift, I mean, you are absolutely using your your lats <laughs> um, to, to be able to keep your posture and not load the the lumbar spine so uh, i mean pull-ups are huge and and they're also um as far as upper body exercise for soccer players i think they think they're in isolation but they're including the entirety of the trunk so something like a pull-up the there's emg research that it's one of the best core activation movements over an ab wheel rollout and if you do a strict pull-up, your body's totally straight. You absolutely feel it in your core. And I've had, I've had my female athletes say this to me when, when they do it right. They're like, whoa, that felt like I just did 100 sit-ups. And I'm like, yeah, well, <laughs> it is also a core exercise. Um, all exercises are core exercises. So I, I always find, find it interesting uh, the the upper body work needs to be looked at holistically but that's not to say we don't benefit from isolation work I mean some of the the soccer guys I've worked with will will bang out bicep curls um and we're trying to really put on muscle mass um and get get the body composition benefits uh girls sometimes as well so um it's all it's all beneficial upper lower everything I just just because it's literally just popped into my head uh, with the young girls that uh, I used to train. Uh, one thing that I would find is that uh, even on stuff like suitcase carries, which they didn't particularly like that much, so we ended up swapping it just for your typical, uh, I don't know if you call them in America, like wheelbarrows where you hold someone's legs in a pressure position. Yeah, yeah. So those we, are awesome. Yeah, so we've played around with those as sort of disguised loaded carries. But what I was finding is the grip is just a sign of bigger issues. It's like, well, if you can't, hold yourself on a pull-up 
then we can't really do deadlifts. We can't really um, do what well, we can't obviously do chin-ups. And actually you're like, well, yes, for example, football doesn't require grip, but you're like, that's a sign of other things which are potentially going to limit your performance. Yeah. I mean, there's so much, um, there's so much transfer through between all the lifts. Um, and I, this actually popped into my head, like even just being able to press overhead, whether it's, um, a half kneeling Arnold press or a a seated military press or um, a Z press from the floor, um, getting that down and really building the shoulder strength, uh, then we can get our athletes maybe uh, being successful with a hand clean catch and getting weight on their shoulders. So, and then feeling confident in that catch. So it, there, there's just so much transfer to every lift. And uh, just a question that I meant to ask earlier when we talk about ACL uh, injuries in terms of youth female athletes and knee pain, um, what approach do you take to that? Cause I know that it's, it's too easy to be like, oh, knee pain must be this. Um, but if I was a young female athlete and I'm suffering with knee pain, what are the approach or what kind of steps do you take to helping that young female athlete? Yeah, knee pain is is, is a big one I see, uh, especially in, in the early teens or um, like around age 11, 12 for female athletes, as far as um, the quad is pulling on the, the patella tendon. Um, so sometimes it's just maybe stretching the quad more and not rushing your warmups. Um, sometimes it's strengthening every muscle that safeguards the knee. So uh, still your quads, hamstrings and glutes, uh, maybe calves, um, but still making sure you're, you're stretching the quad um, and just load management. I mean, most of the girls who have complained about knee pain are playing two sports in the same season, like, and two very similar sports, like soccer and lacrosse or soccer and basketball. And that's when it's like, okay, well, as a coach, I need to ask them the question, hey, you're in pain, is what you're currently doing working for you? (laughs) And uh, they'll answer no. (laughs) And then it's kind of this, this conversation of discovery. Okay, well, what, what do you think you need to do to alleviate this pain a little bit? So it's crucial, it's crucial to catch it early on, and, and ask them these questions. Otherwise, that it just becomes a nagging pain for several months, sometimes many years. Um, and it's an, it's really, really going to set them back. Yeah. And there's nothing worse than getting an athlete who is young, hungry and wants to improve or wants to show her best to the coaches than pushing through pain when they're 11 and 12. And then, you know, they can't play sport when they're 18 plus. Yeah. And uh, just in, just in wrapping up, you've mentioned a couple of coaches that you've had on your podcast and a few resources uh, that you found to be useful. If you could observe one coach uh, with working with their athletes, who would you observe and why? It would absolutely be Mike Whiteman. <laughs> so uh, Mike, you know, he is just, you can just tell he, he's so dialed in with what he does in his own training, but he's constantly dialed in with, his athletes and learning for them. And I can just, I truly can tell he has a love for the science and pushing the envelope with performance enhancement. And he just loves just 
seeing what the human body's capable of. And, and I love that. And I, I know for a fact that he is just a super buttoned up coach. That's usually what he says. Like he's just super sharp. Uh, he gets the kids attention he's working with big groups and they, they're moving, they're moving well. Uh, there's no goofing off. And I think it would just be amazing to see like what, how he does that. Like, <laughs> I feel like he just like walks on the field and there's like, Oh, Mike's here. Like, I don't, I, it just seems he gives off this just amazing energy of, of inspiration and, and seriousness and being dialed in. And I just want to watch it. <laughs> it it's funny. Cause I was so thinking, cool. I always think when people, for example, say, oh, I'd like to work with this coach, this coach, and they, you know, they say names which are like super technical or loads of research papers. And what you just said there, if I've got a coach who can control 40 adolescent athletes or even, you know, not even athletes, 40 children, and they can do it well, because I'm like, there's so many things in, for example, my discussion yesterday with Howard Green, he was saying, actually, even though the youth physical model says that sessions for younger kids need to be less structured, is that actually... They need to be more structured, but in a disguised way. So there's structure, but you, like you said, with Mike, they're walking onto the field. Everyone's paying attention. It's almost like you need to know what's going on underneath the surface rather than just seeing one session, two session. Yeah, I think, yeah, I would, I, I love it. And uh, it, it would be nice to observe someone who's not only about like the X's and O's. Like I know Mike is good at the science and the programming. I already know that, but I just like want to observe to see what he does as, as soon as they step on the field. And, and I'm sure he's just like super prepared and has everything set up and it's like so calculated because that's how he is. And I, I just think it would be so cool to, to see how it's done. Uh, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And again, you mentioned a few resources there. Um, if you had one key resource, whether it's a book, a podcast, um, something you're listening to at the moment. Um. So I really love, this is a non, uh, it's, I would say it's performance, but it's more just like high performance for life is the show impact theory. There's, uh, there's just so much information on there. Uh, yes. As far as strength training for op- optimal health, but also new research on, on sleep and why it's good for our brains and, and our creativity and our muscle recovery and, and growth hormone production, uh, gut health what foods you should be eating for a, a good microbiome and how are you, you feeding the, the bugs inside your gut to, to do their job. And, and gut health is everything. I mean, it, it affects your sleep, your stress, your mood, everything. So I just, I just like watching shows or listening to podcasts where it's just like very cutting edge information that performance coaches aren't really talking about on their shows. Um, but this is stuff we can start talking to our athletes about. And uh, do you feed, I have interest, like, I know obviously you mentor a lot of uh, the young female athletes you work with. Um, do you have, for example, is there specific topics you cover, um, specific resources you use? What does that process look like? Yeah, so we're, uh, we do this thing where we take inventory every few weeks. And so the categories we take inventory on are sleep, nutrition, uh, your friendships, your stress management, uh, academics, how's school going, um, 
your purpose, what's your purpose to train? Like, why are you here? So we'll take inventory on all of those. We'll rank them out of 10, 10 meaning we're super dialed in zero meaning not so much. And we need to fill that bucket. So th- that's, that's how we're having that conversation. And I want it to get to a point where we do the inventory so much, like we do it probably every like two to three weeks. Um, and I want them to get to the point where um, they're just going through life and they're just running the inventory through their head. Like they don't even need to get out their notebook or, or their phone notes. They can just be like, okay, like, where did I slack this week? Oh, was it my nutrition? Was I on social media too much? So just want to get them exposed to these other pieces other than the, the physical training, because these, these pieces affect physical training so much. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> and presumably the idea is, is this something you do with all of your athletes when they get to a certain age or depending on how long they've been working with you? Everyone, everyone, even, even the young ones. Yeah. So I'm very intrigued as to what that conversation might look like for say your year eight your eight-year-olds versus uh 16-year-olds who you've worked with for a longer time what would that look like when they're really young versus when they've spent more time with you so I don't train as many eight-year-olds now so I'm really starting it with that 10 to 11 year old um age group and the, the conversation's honestly not that much different you know I, my my middle schoolers man they they just amaze me with how smart they are like there I'm having probably a deeper conversation with an 11 year old than a 30 year old nowadays. (laughs) And I'm just like, what is going on? But it's awesome. So it's, yeah, I mean, these conversations with them are just, they don't phase them. They're like, Oh, okay. Like, yeah, let's check in with our our sleep, our nutrition. Okay. (laughs) So it's really cool. No, I like that. I like that. And uh, if you could have one key take home for listeners, whether parents, coaches of youth athletes, S&C coaches. Take care of your health. I mean, it's it's all you got. Um, it's it's going to be huge for, for sport performance, but it's going to be huge for the real world. And, and we see that now. We see that now in, in year 2020. And it's a message that you're not going to see on uh, mainstream media. Um, so take care of your health because what they aren't telling you is if you just put in the brushstrokes of the basics, movement every day, sunlight, even meditation, getting your sleep, that's half the battle. Like you'll be taken care of. Brilliant. And finally, if uh, the listeners want to see more of your work, get in touch with you, uh, how can they do that? So I'm uh, most active on Twitter and Instagram and my handles are fit soccer queen. Awesome. And I'll put those, uh, put those in the show notes. Uh, thank you very much for your time, Erica. Thank you. This was a great conversation. Thank you for listening to episode number 31 of the platform to perform podcast. Uh, if you would like to support the podcast, you can do so by heading over to www.patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P coaching. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a coach, a teacher or a parent. And uh, if you would find the time to review the podcast on your preferred platform, that's going to help grow the podcast and help us reach more listeners. Thank you very much for listening.